This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you can be with us today. And today we're going to talk about something that is real positive. It's an excellent program, but it deals with a very serious issue in Texas, and that's childhood obesity. We're delighted that we've got Ryan Eason. He's the Director of Community Relations at Medical City Healthcare. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Steve. You know, I think to kind of set the stage a little bit, can you let our listeners know one of the reasons you started this program over 10 years ago was obesity in children in Texas. Can you kind of set the stage with our listeners as to why this is such a serious issue? Yes, I'm sure all the listeners know pretty much, you know, the epidemic that's going on with childhood obesity. But what we specifically looked at is the um, the malnutrition or lack of good nutrition um, when it comes to kids during snack time. Um, 33% of a child's diet today comes from snacking. And so we wanted to address that specific issue um, that allows kids to, um, you know, play with their food, be more comfortable in front of fruits and vegetables during snack time. You know, you set up this program. It's really called Kids Teaching Kids. Can you explain that to our listeners, what that means? Yes. Um, so Medical City Children's Hospital has a partnership with the Texas Restaurant Foundation. And there's high schools all over the country um, and the, part of the career and technology education um, aspect of the school districts um, where we and the dietitians go in and they teach these culinary high school students about understanding food labels and how, how to calculate recipes. And we challenge these culinary students to develop healthier snacks that an elementary school kid can make by themselves. So each year, the dietitians assign these different classrooms and students, you know, different types of fruits and vegetables, and those students are then challenged to create a snack recipe around that fruit or vegetable that is put into a snack book each year. We also include the graphic design students at these same school districts. We have a huge contest here in North Texas where graphic design students uh, can compete to produce the next year's book. And so um, that is all compiled into our annual 21-day challenge. You know, that's terrific. And it's my understanding, obviously, you have registered dietitians involved, but you also involve culinary students that are in high school. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, the culinary high school. So the Kids Teaching Kids program is all created by high school students, whether it be the graphic design or the culinary. We're just there as the education uh, and providing the resources. But yes, we do work with all the culinary students. So I want to ask you this a little bit before we get into the 21-day challenge. Do you actually help them, like when you go in a grocery store, to read food labels and calculate nutrition? 
that is part of the education that the dietitians actually are giving right now uh, to culinary students all over North Texas is um, we teach them about understanding food labels. That is a misconception sorry, that not only kids have but adults have as well is when we look at the nutritional labels, what is the most important thing to look at? And we really hone, hone that in in educating the culinary students because, again, they're tasked with um, when whatever recipe that they create, they have to do their own nutritional facts of that recipe. So it's that knowledge and base there that makes the program really important. That's fantastic. You know, you mentioned the 21-day challenge. Can you elaborate a little bit for our listeners so they understand the full thrust of this program? Sure. When we first started the program, we were just producing the snack book uh, for the um, school districts that we work with. But our advisory committee, which is made up of all different multidisciplinary people from the, our partnering districts, we had to you know, track data to see through these high school efforts, are we making an impact? And so in 2014, we started the 21-day uh, challenge where you know, we took that old uh, uh, habit, uh, you know, it takes 21 days to, to create a habit. And so we kind of went with that and the parents sign up their kids. It's an at-home snacking program and they are challenged to make a snack every day for 21 straight days uh, through, um, you know, through the recipe book or things that they have in their own uh, household. And after the challenge is over, we wait three weeks and we then we email the parents and, and said, okay, what are their what are your child's snacking habits after the challenge is over? And so that allows us to create data. So we'll have pre and post data from um, each child. And we put that in our annual report, which is on our website. And then we also give all the districts that we work with their specific reports because we want to learn and grow with each of the districts to help support their efforts. You know, Ryan, uh, full transparency here. I know sometimes I snack when I shouldn't. I'll bet this program working with the kids has had a positive impact on parents. Have you seen that? Yes. Uh, we've many stories over the years where, you know, the kids will do the challenge. And you know, obviously I have kids myself and, and, you know, whatever they bring home from school, you know, the, it gets the whole family involved. And so um, when the kids do it, the parents often do it as well. And it was with that that we actually have a 21-day challenge for adults as well. It's called the At Work Program because so many parents have shared with us that they love it in their household. They wish they had something at work. And so we created a, a program for it's the same kids recipes. Um, we just make it more adult centric. You know, we don't add in the Mickey Mouse ears or anything like that kind of snacks. It's the more adult centric type of uh, snacks there. But yes, parents, um, you know, have enjoyed it both at work and at home with their kids. You know, I went to your website and I did a little reading and I was impressed with the kids fit menu and the healthy snack finder. Can you elaborate for our listeners on exactly what that is? Each year when we put out a new book from the culinary students that we work with and, and share it with families, um, we don't want to make it a financial burden for families to just make the snacks that are in the book and having to you know purchase those ingredients. Um, these students have created, um, you know, since 2009, so there is over 600 recipes um, in our Healthy Snack Finder where parents and kids can go in and type in the food that they have in their pantry and, and fridge, and that will 
will come out a snack recipe that a kid created from Rockwall created in 2011 or uh, in Prosper in 2014. So it's a great way to find snack recipes from these culinary students. And then on the Kids Fit menu side, what we have done is we worked with these same culinary students. And, and one thing that is very lacking in a lot of restaurants on kids menus is um, meals that have fruits and vegetables within the meal. Um, and so what we do is we partnered these culinary programs with these restaurants and these kids do the research and development and create kids fit meal that all features at least two servings of fruits and vegetables in every meal. And the only thing that the restaurant, it's free to the restaurant, all they have to do is provide us the data. And I will share with you, Steve, just here in North Texas, there have been over a half a million orders um, from this menu at our partner restaurant. So it's another testament to what these high school kids are doing to the, uh, the improvement of elementary students. This program has so many wonderful elements to it, including mentoring like Ryan Eason, who is the Director of Community Relations at Medical City Healthcare, just mentioned. If you missed this interview and would like to catch it on our podcast, check the human side of healthcare because we're talking about your kids at school and a program that helps fight obesity. It's so important. We're going to continue the conversation next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. We're talking about mentoring our kids how to eat better and offset childhood obesity. This is a community wide program from Medical City Healthcare and our school systems, and Ryan Eason is the Director of Community Relations explaining it. Steve? You know, not only have you done great work with the Texas Restaurant Foundation and the work you just mentioned, I was very impressed to see that you've got supporting partners in the school districts, Allen, Arlington, Capel, Dallas, Frisco, Richardson, Wiley, just to name a few. Can you elaborate on how the school systems have embraced this program? They, they've been obviously instrumental. I mean, it doesn't work without them. And, and that's the what the school districts need are partners that to help their efforts. And when we give them a report, we want to learn and grow with them in that. You know, when we look at the data um, specifically to their district, we think of other ways that we can be uh, more impactful and helpful to families and to the districts. And one example of that is that the program is now growing into expanding into the whole child. Not only, we're always going to focus primarily on nutrition, but we've also partnered with Tapered which stands for uh, Texas Association of Health for Physical Education, um, Recreation, and Dance. And they're the governing body organization for the PE teachers in the state of Texas. And so we're um, adding wellness activities uh, to the program as well as social-emotional learning because we know, you know, with what's been going on here in the past 18 months that mental health is everywhere. And so we need to provide um, education there. And so we're going to help with resources for social-emotional learning for elementary students and their parents, but it's all through this digital book. You know, I also noticed that uh, this program uh, is an outgrowth also in San Antonio at the Methodist Health System. Do you collaborate with them and do you share best practices? Yeah, so they reached out to us and and, um, said that, you know, they would like to start the program down there. And so, um, yeah, we've been helping them get started, working with uh, three school districts uh, down there. And they're just about finished with their 21-day challenge uh, that they are running alongside with ours here in the fall. 
And so we're very excited um, about, you know, the opportunity to spread this uh, program out because, you know, the great thing is, you know, having a partner like the Texas Restaurant Foundation, they're all over the state of Texas and these culinary programs all over the state of Texas that it, it makes the model really easy to, to implement in, in other areas. You know, one of the questions that uh, I'm sure you're asked is, Ryan, you've been doing this for over 11 years. What do the metrics and outcomes show? Well, that part is very hard to to attest to a a specific program. Um, What we can tell you is um, since 2014, since we've collected the data, we've had over 245,000 students uh, participate in the 21-day challenge. And many of those students are repeat um, snackers. So, you know, our goal is let's take a kindergartner at an elementary school is every year during their elementary school that uh, they take participation in the 21 day challenge. And our hope is that when they leave elementary, that they have built those um, snacking habits um, already um, in place. And so that's one of our checkpoints is, you know, make sure that kids are trying new fruits and vegetables. Does this program extend into areas and especially zip codes where the social drivers of health, as you well know, food deserts, food swamps, do you try to address those areas in this program? Well, you've done your research well. So, yes, we actually are moving um, that into that direction. Um, but the, the, the what's key is, is the data. And so the parents that um, sign their kids up, we actually ask the parents um, before we ask any information on the kids is, you know, do they feel like they're food insecure? And what we want to do is take that data back to our district partners and we say, okay, you know, let's say this district had 45% of their parents said they do feel food insecure. And then you, you dive it down deeper and say, okay, this um, Abby Smith Elementary School, 52% of their parents felt like they were food insecure. Then we work with uh, the district and the district works with these nonprofit organizations to really hone in and, and try to make sure that there's food pantries um, available for these parents, but then also helping provide other resources and bring in other stakeholders to really try to make a, make an impact when, when, you know, when food insecurity is, uh, is evident. You know, we've really focused on the kids and obviously kids teaching kids, but obesity is a total problem throughout Texas, regardless of the age, which prompts this question, who can participate in this program? The, the program is actually available to anybody around the world because we put, make, make all our resources available on our website. Um, the 21-day challenge is more specific where we are able to collect data with our partner school districts and share that data with them uh, to help further um, their efforts in improving kids' health. But the 21-day the challenge, you know, a, a, um, let's say we're, uh, one of your listeners is, you know, in Oklahoma and um, they want to uh, do it for their household is they they can go to our website. The digital book is there, um, both in English and Spanish, and um, they can participate that at home. Um, we hope that families uh, will use this as a resource all year round. I mean, we're coming up on the holidays, and 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 food is very prevalent there. And there are some awesome type of fall and Christmassy snacks that these kids have created that they can use uh, to bring the family together in the kitchen during the holiday season. You know, the name of this show is The Human Side of Healthcare, and we've been trying to showcase some of the good things and good works our hospitals do for the community. From your point of view and in your 
position as Director of Community Relations. Why does the hospital feel this important program needs their full support? Well, it, it comes with, you know, what's been going on. Um, you know, our main focus is here is mental health awareness and also food insecurity and food nutrition. And so I'm at an awesome position where, um, you know, we could take a program that we created in 2009 and kind of morph it into what our, our families and, and people are dealing with today. And I shared with you earlier that, you know, the program is moving more into, um, you know, the whole child. And, and, and that is, you know, what the hospital is about. Our mission is, you know, the care and improvement of human life. And so we want to make sure that we're there as an education resource, but also to have data behind what we're doing so we can make the best decisions and, 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 and with our stakeholders and our community partners and to better the health of our community. You know, Ryan, I think that summed it up well. And I think having the data and the metrics to support what you're doing is so important. Can't thank you enough. You've done a great job. I'm going to pause now because Thomas always asks much better questions than I do. So I'm going to turn it over to Thomas. Do you think kids today think of ahead about what might be their future if they eat junk like diabetes is almost certain? Well, I think the information is getting out there at an earlier uh, age than, than, you know, mainly you hear a lot of that stuff when you're in, you're in high school. Um, I think the information is, is, is getting out there earlier, and, and I, I like to think that our program is helping in that discussion. When we work with our partner school districts, the collaborative effort through many departments within the school districts that we work with from food and nutrition to the career and technology um, areas to social-emotional learning and, and the PE department, and, and it's a... Um, you know, in listening to those um, those key people, uh, we really want to make sure that that uh, that message is is concise and, and gets out there at an early age, not only to the to the kids but also to to the parents. We all know by observation that the pressure in our society, and we can only imagine what the pressure is at school to eat things like pizza, pop, candy in the lunchroom, etc. What does that pressure look like from your eyes? They're getting better. Uh, the schools are, are getting a little better than, I don't know, five, seven years ago. Uh, but there's still more work that needs to be done. What we have seen, um, and it's very heartbreaking, is coming kids coming into school and, and it's the only meal that they get. They don't get anything at home. And, you know, that is, and, and seeing that so prevalent in so many school districts has, has forced us to, to rethink and, and to add into new elements uh, to the program so we can really, um, you know, get specific with that. So, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you always have to change the status quo. You don't have a program and, and keep it out there and keep it the same. You got to learn from the parents, learn from the schools, learn from ourselves um, on how we can make being things better uh, to make a greater impact uh, for families. And then just like on a scale of one to 10, maybe, what kind of support do you get from home? Well, the parents are doing great. I mean, we, we get tons of uh, responses and actually uh, we get some great emails and, you know, we ask them if we can share those in our annual report. Um, you know, one of the things that, again, that we're wanting to get more feedback on and, 
one thing I didn't share earlier to you and Steve is that before COVID, the, the book has always been a paperback book. Well, since COVID, um, we moved into a digital book uh, platform. And one of those things that allows us to do is, is, is look at the data a lot easier through analytics. And so we can see now what parents and kids are clicking on and, and allows us to hopefully be better programmed for them. And so we're hoping to each year trying to, to learn and get more about so far the, the feedback from the parents has, has just been um, fabulous. Thank you, Ryan Eason from Medical City Healthcare. The website is kids-teaching-kids.com if you'd like more information. When we come back, the path to and through medical school with Dr. Andy Massica next on the human side of healthcare. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Today, we're going to be discussing how do we increase the physician workforce in North Texas. This is so important to have the staffing needs met, not only for our hospitals, but for the community. We're delighted we've got Dr. Andrew Massacre with us today. He's Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Reliable Health at Texas Health Resources. Welcome to the show. Steve, thank you. Great to speak with you again. You know, to help our listeners understand, and you can recount probably as you were a physician, you go to school and then you go into a residency program. Can you share what a residency program is and how it helps physicians continue their education? Certainly. So what I'll be describing here is the typical pathway for a U.S. medical student. To become a physician following an undergraduate degree, one attends four years of medical school. All medical school graduates must then complete a period of graduate medical education, what we uh, abbreviate to as GME, and that's also known as residency training, to be licensed to practice medicine in the U.S., So GME really comprises the second phase of the formal education that prepares doctors for medical practice. During residency, doctors learn skills and techniques specific to their chosen specialty under the supervision of attending physicians and services as part of the care teams. Now, depending on the specialty, those residencies can last anywhere from three to seven years. Uh, I'm an internal medicine physician, so my residency was three years. Something like neurosurgery uh, is seven years. Subspecialty fellowships, which occur after residency, for example, uh, if one wanted to become a cardiologist after completing an internal medicine residency, uh, that fellowship training is also considered part of the GME phase. You know, there's been a real shortage of physicians nationally. We've heard a lot about it. How would you describe the current situation in Texas and specifically in North Texas? It is a physician workforce uh, has been and is still a very significant issue in Texas. Uh, Some recent data uh, released by the Association of American Medical Colleges uh, showed that Texas currently ranks 41 out of the 50 states uh, in terms of physicians per 100,000 residents. So just to share some numbers, Texas currently has about 225 physicians per 100,000 residents. The national median is 277 physicians per 100,000 residents. Uh, So that's what uh, uh, creates the scenario where Texas has one of the worst shortages in the country. Uh, In the aggregate, 
Texas is projected to have a shortage of over 10,000 positions by 2032. Uh, the problem in the DFW area is, is also compounded by the rapid population growth. So uh, the, the, the region is growing faster than we can repopulate it with physicians. I talked about the training pathway uh, and what is required to become a practicing, practicing physician earlier. To actually produce more physicians in the community uh, who are out there serving patients, both phases of training, medical school and GME, have to be scaled up. Uh, now, while the number of medical schools and medical students has increased in Texas over the past few years, uh, we have to keep pace with that in terms of GME positions. Adding GME slots creates more opportunities for those students to stay in the state for the residency training and then ultimately uh, to become practicing physicians in the North Texas community. So specifically, as you look at Texas Health, what would you say they're doing in the GME space to really help alleviate this problem and have more physicians in the pipeline, specifically in North Texas? Sure. We have identified GME as a key priority to support our mission of improving the health of the communities we serve, and we are actively growing our residency training platform. So just a, just a run-through of the programs that we have. Uh, Texas Health Dallas has a well-established internal medicine program. Uh, it's been there for quite a while. Uh, we just started a general surgery program at Fort Worth this past summer in 2021, uh, and we recently received approval uh, from the national accrediting body for two new additional internal medicine residencies, uh, one at Texas Health Fort Worth and a second combined program at uh, Texas Health Hearst Euless Bedford and Texas Health Denton. As I mentioned previously, development of GME programs is an integral step towards retaining physicians in North Texas. Uh, in this state, 67% of the residents stay in-state after their training. Uh, that number jumps to over 80% uh, if those residents also trained and uh, if they also attended medical school in Texas. So you, you may have heard the quote that uh, uh, people tend to stay where they train uh, in terms of their medical practice. That definitely holds true in this state. So what we're trying to do is, is create uh, the, the full pathway of training uh, to, have, uh, to have the number of GME slots match the, new, the, the medical student uh, positions uh, that are also open in the state. I know recently there was an announcement of a partnership between Texas Health, TCU, and the UNT Health Science Center School of Medicine. Can you explain to our listeners about this program and how it works? Yes. Texas Health Resources and the TCU UNT Health Sciences Center School of Medicine uh, very recently expanded their affiliation to include to now include support of graduate medical education. Uh, in, in particular, uh, the, the affiliation covers our hospitals and the programs at Fort Worth, Hearst Euless Bedford, and Denton. Uh, in essence, what we're doing here is we're pairing a large integrated care delivery organization uh, with the medical school as an academic institution. What that partnership does is it creates new avenues for educational activities, faculty engagement, and research initiatives that enhance the GME programs and then over the longer term uh, promote growth of that robust physician workforce in North Texas. Uh, additionally, uh, nearly three-quarters of medical school graduates prefer to matriculate to a residency program affiliated with a medical school. Uh, and so uh, from that standpoint, it also helps us with recruitment of strong candidates from around the country. You know, as you look at the total Texas Health GME programs, how many residents will you train? 
So as of July 22, uh, we'll have over 70 residents training across the Texas Health Programs. Uh, by 2025, uh, as the existing programs build up and add additional residents uh, and reach their, uh, their their sort of their full uh, full capacity of residents, and we look at adding other residencies, it is anticipated the annual number of residents uh, training across Texas Health will exceed 150. So, for the people that may be listening that are currently in training to be a physician, can you give an overview of the application process? to Texas Health? So medical students enter residency programs through a process uh, that is called the MATCH. So in brief, how that works is that during the fall of their fourth year, medical students apply to residencies in their clinical area of interest. Uh, there's a time period where students learn more about the programs, uh, followed by an interview to ensure that those programs are a fit both from the perspective of the medical student and also the host residency program. Uh, in the subsequent March, Medical students and residency programs uh, are matched uh, through a ranking process uh, for their respective selections. And so that's hence the name, the match process. Uh, at the sites where, they, uh, where the students match, uh, they will then begin their training as residents, and so their GME training, on July 1st of that year. You know, to our listeners out there that are hearing this and hearing about the physician workforce, what question should I have asked you that I didn't? Well, I think one, one thing that would be of interest is uh, how has the pandemic uh, affected medical education? And uh, has it affected interest in careers in healthcare overall? And uh, my, my response to that would be this, is that uh, I think as we've all learned uh, throughout the DFW area uh, and, and really across, across the U.S. and across the world, is that uh, responding to the pandemic has largely been about adaptation. Uh, not necessarily going back to, to normal or the way things were, but taking the information we learned during COVID-19 and using it to improve, uh, improve care, improve processes, uh, whatever needs to be done. That same concept applies to medical education. Uh, how students learned and how they were able to get their clinical training during the pandemic was an active area of innovation. Uh, more broadly, the pandemic really emphasized the importance of service and community engagement as part of the health system mission, uh, and we really want to embed those principles into our GME programs. I think one thing that is heartening is that uh, overall, uh, nationally, medical school applications in 2021 uh, were up nearly 20% compared to the 2020 application cycle. Uh, I think what that suggests is that the call to service, uh, the importance of community engagement, and the appeal of a career as a physician uh, still resonated very strongly after the pandemic. You know, a lot of people now are questioning whether to even go to college, and the trades are being paralleled as, you know, you can go learn a trade in trade school in two years and make pretty good money. So as you think about that, is there, are you still seeing a lot of people who want to become physicians? Well, as I, as I referenced uh, just the, the statistics indicate that the career still has a lot of appeal. I think that what is uh, what continues to attract people to medicine is uh, the opportunity to serve others, uh, the science, and the fact that there are many things you can do with a career in healthcare. Uh, you, there's always the opportunity to provide direct clinical care with GME uh, that presents opportunities to teach. Uh, and then uh, in my own career track, uh, you also have an avenue to conduct research and to innovate. So if you're really looking for something that would 
satisfy intellectual curiosity, promote lifelong learning, service to others, uh, and, and really uh, just integration into the community uh, and enable leave, uh, to leave a positive impact uh, on a particular region. Uh, medicine is uh, still uh, always things that can improve, but it's still a wonderful long-term career uh, where you can fulfill all those aspects. And when asked if he would pursue a career again in medicine, Dr. Massica's answer, absolutely yes. We've been listening to Dr. Andrew Massica, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Reliable Health at Texas Health Resources. Now, when we come back, there is a little tiny object in your home that could literally put your small children on an operating table. Find out what it is and how to prevent injury next on the human side of healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. The holidays are coming, kids are going to be opening their gifts, everyone's going to be excited, but there is some danger. Some of those small parts can certainly be dangerous to young children. We're going to specifically today talk about button batteries and how they can be dangerous to young children. We're delighted that we've got Cheryl Malone with us. She's a BSN RN, and she's the Children's Surgical Program Manager at Medical City Children's Hospital. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me and allowing me to have a great conversation about the dangers of button battery ingestions for our community. You know, to help our listeners completely understand, and we're all on the same page, can you first explain what a button battery is and what's contained in those batteries? Yes, so the button battery is the round lithium flat battery that is found in a lot of our items more frequently around our house. What types of items in our home generally contain these button batteries? So the household items have increased over the years that contain these type of small round batteries. They are in our key fobs. They are in those flameless candles. They're in remote controls. They're in grandparents or even our parents' hearing aids. Musical greeting cards, uh, our bathroom scales are using these batteries, and also the talking books that children read with their parents are now containing these batteries. So we need to be very vigilant if we have these items in our homes. Why is it so dangerous if these button batteries are ingested by a child? So the content of the button battery is typically lithium. So if a child ingests the lithium button battery, especially in the ages of our children that are six years and younger, we know that they're very curious but they also have very narrow airways and paths to swallowing them. So the younger the child, the less 
that the battery will go all the way down, you know, through the esophagus and into the stomach. So what it does, it gets stuck in the upper portion of the esophagus. And if we don't realize that the child has swallowed it, within one to two hours, that lithium button battery can injure the lining of the esophagus even to the point of burning it. So we want to, um, recognition is the key so we can stop that injury. So you mentioned recognition, and I totally understand that. What would you say are some of the symptoms that parents should look for? If the parent has not recognized that the child has swallowed the battery, they just look at their child and um, unexpectedly the child is choking or they're coughing They've got an acute onset or a really quick onset of some noisy breathing. They might be gagging because that um, ingested object is stuck in the back of their throat. They might drool because they're not able to continue to swallow their own spit. They might start vomiting. In the younger child, a parent might recognize that the child is not eating Or if it's an older child, they um, are having difficulty or they might tell their parent that they're having painful swallowing. So once that occurs, let's assume you're a parent, a grandparent, a babysitter. Once you have determined and you're sure based on those symptoms, the child may have swallowed a button battery, what should they then do? The most important remedy would bring the child to the emergency department. There are two other options that the parent, the grandparent, or the babysitter could call. There's actually a national poison control center, and there's also a national button battery ingestion. But I would suggest if we truly know that it's a button battery, they've noticed it gone from, you know, one of the household items, call 911 or bring them to the emergency department as soon as possible. Would you recommend they call 911 and get an EMT, especially if their breathing is obstructed, rather than take the chance of putting them in a car and driving to the ED? Absolutely. Yes, sir. If there is any potential for airway obstruction or the child is having difficulty breathing, 911 is essential. Do you have any idea roughly from national statistics or even some locally how often a child ingests a button battery? What percent of children, for example, ingest these batteries? So over the last 10 years, I've been reading some statistical um, literature, and within the past 10 years, button battery ingestion, although not frequent, has still tripled in the last 10 years. There are more objects in the home that are now using these type of batteries. 52% are boys and around 47% are girls. And again, it's typically in the, in the age group of six years and younger. And let me tell you that 40% um, of the button battery ingestions are unwitnessed. So we're really working with time against the clock if we know that they ingested something, but we don't know what it is. And 60% of those kids are asymptomatic, right? We don't even know. We just know something went down or they told us something went down. 
but we don't know what it is and we need to figure out if it's a button battery or if it's just a coin. You know, Cheryl, listening to you answer that makes me think we really should treat batteries around young children as if it is poison. We should keep them out of reach. We should make sure that they're in a locked cabinet, especially so young children cannot get to them. That is essential. Prevention is the key to avoid any morbidity or unfortunate mortality that can be related to button battery ingestions. Um, One thing that happened in 2008, the Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, required toy manufacturers to ensure batteries are secured in toys that are intended for children three and under. I'd really like to pursue, you know, the the six-year and under with the Children's uh, or the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Yes, primary prevention is the key. You know, we're talking about button batteries. What about other batteries like AA or AAA? Do you see children, unfortunately, ingest those as well? Occasionally. What we've come across more frequently in the emergency department are coins and the magnets that are in several different toys. When a child ingests a magnet, they adhere to each other once they're swallowed and into the stomach and the small bowel and can become very dangerous. And children can have bowel perforations from the magnets. If you are waiting to get your child to the emergency room or you're even waiting because you call 911 and you're confident they ingested a button battery, should you give them anything like milk? No. It is not recommended you have them take anything else orally. Management of button batteries is a surgery removal. And obviously that's the last thing any of us would want during the holidays. Great information. Cindy Malone, Medical City Children's Hospital. Next week, we're going to revisit one of our favorite interviews from this year, Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. You're so right. You know, Mark Cuban has AFib. He's adjusted his lifestyle, his diet, so that he can live with it. Great information for our listeners. Thomas, I hope you have a great holiday. Thank you, sir, and I hope that you and your wife have a wonderful holiday as well. Absolutely. And to our many listeners, thank you for a great year, and we wish you and yours the very best during this holiday season. Join us next week for the human side of healthcare.